Hello and welcome to the 28th episode of the Pop Culture Quorum Dale podcast. I am one of the hosts, Jeff Wright, and I am here with my friend and compatriot, Jared Moore. Jared, how are you doing, man? Doing all right, man. Surviving. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Don't want you dying <laughs> off on me. Hey, so uh, did you watch the Emmys tonight? We're we're recording uh, as the Emmys are uh, being playing, or rather, playing out live. Uh, on our television and our planet. You watch any of that? No. I was on Twitter just a minute ago and I checked the hashtag and apparently someone proposed to his girlfriend on the Emmys. I don't know who they were, but it kind of broke the internet for a little while. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm not much on proposals. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. You've got to explain that further. I don't know. I just don't watch them. I don't know. Oh, you don't. You're not for public proposals. It's not that I'm against them. I'm just. Not, I don't know. <laughs> I guess they're sweet. I'm just not a. My. I'm a, I, I scroll past them on Facebook. Oh so. yeah. Okay. Okay. You. I mean, you're you're generally in favor of men and women being married, though, right? Yeah, I'm in favor of marriage, of course. Okay. I don't know. I I think a lot of thought goes into proposals. More so than and weddings, more so than marriages. Lots of times, um, that's true. I was talking to a lady today from our church, and she was talking about uh, her son, who you know is getting serious with this young woman he's been dating for some time, and I guess they've been talking about engagement. And uh, she said that the the young lady told her son that he had to ask her to marry him whenever he was going to do that. It had to be when she had a uh, a fresh nail job done on her on her fingernails and I was like how does that work why is that a criteria and she said that I, she assumed that it was so that you know the Instagram pictures of the ring and and whatnot would all look as nice as they possibly could I just thought man how the times are a changing my goodness yeah yeah it's see I don't know you shouldn't even be thinking about what other people think about your proposal like that shouldn't even be crossing your mind yeah I mean I guess I don't want to beat up on them from a distance but it was all to me. And I just thought, too, that kind of kills the surprise of the thing, right? Like, he's either going to mm-hmm. tell you, go get your nails done, or, you know, you'll be like, hey, I got my nails done. I wonder if today's the day. And I don't know, it just limits sort of the spontaneity of the thing. But anyway, there was a proposal on the Emmys, and we can all ooh and ah and coo over the cuteness of it. Uh, it's good to mm-hmm. see. Good to see the institution of marriage. Uh, still get some prime time love. But hey, we're not here to talk about marriage. We're here to talk about Netflix's animated Jewel. And I say that because they spent $30 million buying the thing. Next good gen. grief. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, but before we do that, Jared, you watching or reading anything good lately? Um, I since we last talked, I don't, I don't think uh, I've just listened to Lore some more. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't really been doing doing a whole lot of watching. I watched some Better Call Saul, but other than that, man, that's about it. Yeah, well, I'm, I guess I'm not consuming as much as normal either. Teaching has me tied up more regularly, but I am trying to finish the um, the Hulu series Castle Rock that's based on the Stephen King universe. Mm-hmm. I've heard some stuff about the ending that you know. I think this is a spoiler since I haven't seen it either, but uh, the ending of that series. Or maybe season one of the series. I'm actually not sure, but uh, people were disappointed in it, and uh, I'm trying to trying to kind of plow through the thing so I can move on to something else. But not to give away too much about early, or excuse me, later in the episode. But uh, I'm I'm planning a Predator marathon. I've went hmm. and tracked down all the Predator movies, and I think I'm going to watch just chronologically straight through those sometime when I get a uh, a break in in my regularly scheduled viewing. Okay, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, I know you're a big fan. I I uh, I'm I'm looking forward to talking to you about. Well, that was an uneventful what you're watching, uh, but now we'll move into our <laughs> segment called 
so sorry to interrupt. Hey everybody, just a heads up. At this point, Jared and I get into a pretty extended discussion on the Predator and some of what we discuss could lightly, possibly, maybe be considered spoilers. So I wanted to give you a heads up to make sure you didn't have any details of that movie spoiled for you. If you want to skip ahead through our discussion of the Predator, go ahead and use your skip forward button until about 15 minutes and 43 seconds. Okay, thanks. Back to the discussion. Jared, speaking of The Predator, you and I went and watched that thing uh, last week. Uh, as I mentioned already, and as our listeners know, you're a big fan of that franchise. What do you think about The Predator? Um, well, it was too crude to to do on this show, I think. And so that's that's why we're doing Next Gen instead of The Predator. Um, there was, was a lot of foul language. I mean, we've yeah. talked on here a lot uh, often about how foul language isn't, you know, doesn't wound our conscience as much as nudity, sexual stuff, right? But man, and this is like right at the line there. <laughs> and the thing that kind of killed me, I don't think this is a spoiler we have to warn anybody about, but the female lead in that movie was so foul mouthed. And I thought that maybe they were like trying to make her a credible, like colleague of these military guys by having her be the most foul mouthed. But man, it was, it was kind of overwhelming. I, I'm with you. Yeah. She was, she was worse than them or yeah. just as bad, but yeah, it was just, it was more, I mean, the first one had some crude, a couple of crude jokes or statements in it. This one had like 30, 40 or something. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was almost like it was trying to, I don't know, mess with, compete with Deadpool or something. Um, not, I mean, not that obviously that's probably not on the radar, but just that, you know, we can be, it's already a rated R movie because of violence. So, you know, Say what you know, want. Yeah. yeah, but, but other than that, other than the conscience issues, I thought they did a good job with it. I, I thought that um, I loved, I mean, the, the music, they used the music from the first one, um, which I thought was brilliant um, because it took me, it took me back to the original. And yeah. um, I read that they tried to get Arnold um, to do a cameo in this, but that it just wasn't a big enough part for him. He turned him down. Oh, really? Come on, Arnold. Dad, yeah. come. I mean, that would have, I mean, if they could have got him in saving the day somehow or saving somebody's life, I mean, it would have, that would have uh, thrown it over the top. And the I did like I mean they they basically I like how they defeated the predator and everything I mean it was it was good I mean it was you know it was uh, not the first one but it was this should have been it was a, a good sequel I mean it should have been it's better than all the rest all the rest of the sequels you're, you're yes. not saying it's better than the original right no no okay it's not better than the original the original I don't think they'll ever outdo it because um, this one it would just it. It, there was a lot of nonsense to like the global warming and um, the patchwork of DNA. And <laughs> I mean, all that's just Looney Tunes, but it was, it was a fun movie. Yeah. How, how did you like Boyd Holbrook as the, you know, the big, like, I don't know, action star that the movie's built around? I don't know if you watch Logan, but he's in, he's in Logan, I think is like the, the bad guy in that one. And that's the only thing I can remember him from. I, I've seen Logan, but I didn't even remember that guy in it. I think he plays like a mercenary or something, the one that's chasing Logan and Professor X. I okay. think that's right. I think that's right. But yeah, again, that's the only thing I've I've seen him in prior to this. I thought he did it. I thought he did a good job. He just does not look I mean, he should have gotten beefed up for this role, you know? Like yeah, well, they did make him a sniper. That's when you know what I mean? Like yeah. you don't have to be a physical powerhouse to be a sniper, but yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, none of the guys were big, were they? They didn't have a single they were all military guys. 
Um, was it Tay Diggs? Was he was he in it? I guess he was the biggest guy. No, dude, Tay, Tay Diggs wasn't in this. Who are you thinking about? I don't know. No, they're um, Trevante Rhodes played Nebraska. You know, kind That's of the I'm thinking of the buddy that uh, he was there with. Sterling K. Brown was the bad guy, obviously. Um, yeah, with, with Holbrook, I kind of thought I kind of thought he got overshadowed by some of his co stars. You know, probably the biggest star right now, anyway, in this is Sterling K. Brown. But you also had Keegan Michael Key. Olivia Munn, um, Thomas Jane. Like, there were some fairly well-known actors in this movie, and and Boyd was the one who was supposed to carry it. I, I thought it did a fine job, but mm-hmm. I spent a lot more time paying attention to, again, Trevante Rhodes, obviously Sterling K. Brown. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm curious to see if he goes on to have an action career here. I thought it was uh, – I, I didn't think this, like, marked him out as the next big thing in action movies, if that makes sense. It, it didn't, and there wasn't – I mean, did he do much hand-to-hand combat? I mean, did he – do much amazing shooting scenes and no he I mean he got in a fight with the guys in the barn but you know this movie wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of like hand-to-hand combat he did a lot of running around jumping and shooting guns mm-hmm. um, but but there really wasn't a lot of fisticuffs if I can borrow that uh, phrase yeah, but with the, action with okay. action movies action movies you got to have I feel like there's got to be some up close choreographed stuff right right like and they, they just wasn't in this movie. Like, I, I guess what I'm saying, I don't think that he needed this need to be like a John McClane type performance in order for him to, you know, one one man army type thing. And it wasn't that. Yeah. I mean, I guess Shane Black may have been trying to go in a different direction, but you could have had him and Traeger throw down. Right. They're, they're similarly sized. And they mm-hmm. hint at it. Right. That like after we deal with the Predator, uh, you and I are going to straighten this stuff out. But we, I guess I shouldn't go too far, too, too much farther without a spoiler warning. But. Anyway, they could have done some different things there. Um, yeah. So, have you looked at the reviews on this? No. Uh-uh. So, Rotten Tomatoes, the critics gave it 34%. The audience gave it 51%. Metacritic has it at 49 Letterboxd has it at 2.6 out of 5. Those scores are not super great. Do you think it deserves to be panned? No, I don't. Let me um, let me read you the consensus statement from Rotten Tomatoes. Maybe you can react to that. So here's the RT consensus. The Predator has violence and quips to spare, but its chaotically hollow action adds up to another missed opportunity for a franchise increasingly defined by disappointment. Is that fair? I don't think so. Um, I mean, this one is so much better than the original Part 2. Um, it's better than Alien versus Predator. I mean, it, it's a better story. Um, they even involved the ship. They even involved, um, you know... I say it's a better story. The concept of the predator trying to save humanity, like that rogue predator. Yeah. You know, that that's just... You know, the predators never cared for humanity at all. You know, we're animals to them. Right. So I, if, if anybody listening to this follows me on Letterboxd, you already know my conclusions about this movie. But what I wrote after reading some of these reviews is that I can only conclude that people criticizing this movie wanted different things than I did from a pop sci-fi action movie about a space alien wearing dreads. Yeah. I mean, I really don't get It's sort of like the Meg, right? You know, you, mm-hmm. you go into this wanting to see stuff blow up, cool weapons, uh, aliens. Uh, okay, we got all that. And it was fun. Mm-hmm. I listened to an interview with Keegan-Michael Key about lots of different stuff. We talked about this movie quite a bit. He said that 
Shane Black had updated this for the modern world. You know, he basically taken the original Predator and updated it. And the way he highlighted that Shane Black had updated it is that when the original Predator came out, he said the band of military people are basically superheroes. And he says that they kind of embodied the spirit of the 80s. You know, bigger, badder, everything was cooler, you know, image mm-hmm. was everything. And he said today, when we think about soldiers, we think of PTSD and men who've been broken by combat. And so, you know, both Jordan Peele and Keegan-Michael Key, when they talk about their work, they are not afraid to go grandiose. Mm-hmm. But he said in that interview, this is a treatise on PTSD. Um, I don't quite follow him in that estimation, but it is curious that he's he thinks that when you tell so, sto- stories about soldiers, you have to tell broken soldiers for them to reflect modern sensibilities. You know, I don't know what to make of that. I mean, I think we're definitely more aware of PTSD. I just don't know if that's the only story you can tell. Like, I'm thinking about like, uh, how do I not remember the the name of the movie with Chris Hemsworth in it that we reviewed? Not Horse Soldiers. That was the the the, the book it was based on. Twelve Strong, right? Twelve Strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a very good soldier movie, but it didn't didn't have to focus on sort of the um, the effects of war on soldiers. Right. So you think he's right or wrong on that? I mean, no, nah, I think he's wrong, man. Um, but I mean, he would know with with Shane Black. I don't think soldiers want us to focus on those things. Um, I mean, at least not soldiers, exclusively. Yeah, I mean the the soldiers that I know, um, you know, they don't want to they don't want to focus on those things. Yeah, I mean, if anything, they want to you know they're they're taught how to survive and persevere, and you know they're they're fighters, and they want to fight even. Even that, you know, even the PTSD. Sure, um, sure. Well, anything else you got to to say about the Predator, bud? Um, I would like to see somebody else get it. Um, somebody else get it as director or as act, as star or both? Both. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I hope they keep making them, but you know, give it to somebody. I, I do like that he was nostalgic over the first one and tried to you know, bring, you know, harken back to it. But um, I still think they need to go back to the, and we've talked about it some, that you need a big, a big action star doing it. And uh, I would love to see him back in the jungle again. But Yeah. And that's another thing uh, Key mentioned in that interview. He said that every bit of that was shot in Montreal. Hmm. And uh, he said, you know, that the, I think he said Montreal. I know it was Canada. Maybe it was Vancouver, but I think he said Montreal. And he said, you know, they would go out and put up like palm fronds and they made the, the or Oregon looking forest look like a jungle. So I was really blown away by how they were able to do that. Wow, that's cool. How much money? So is it making money? Is Predator making money? You know, I haven't looked into it. Um, I was going to ask you, though, is uh, is this a movie that you'll go see again? Maybe not in the theater, but, you know, will you rent it or buy the Blu-ray or anything like that? I'll probably rent it. I doubt I'll ever watch it, like own it. Yeah. Uh, I own the first one. That's the only one I own. And I, well, I own Alien versus Predator. Yeah. Okay. Um, it looks like this movie has made thus far uh, in the U.S. just under 25 million and worldwide it's at like 54 million. Uh, the budget was 88 million. So I don't know if it'll make its money back. There's a piece on Forbes uh, about why the, the Predator bombed in America. Um, but the New York Times, I guess, according to their charts, it's the top box office draw. So Hmm. I don't know. Maybe the story is still not completely written on this one. We'll see. We'll see. Um, I guess that was kind of a deep dive because we were considering doing an episode on that one. More more quickly, did you see this new picture of Joaquin Phoenix uh, from his Joker movie? We just got the first shot, and uh, I was curious if mm-hmm. you've taken a look at it. I have, I have. 
Any any particular comments? I mean, he's a strange fella. Um, I'd like to. I, I'm interested, intrigued. Yeah, he has certainly done the uh, the body modification thing. That's more slender than I'm used to seeing him. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming uh, this this shot is pre chemical bath. He just looks like a dude who's had some hard times, you know. Yeah, he does. Um, yeah, I think we've talked about it a little bit, but it's just super weird that Warner Brothers chose to do two Joker movies, particularly after Leto's Joker was so panned. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. Did you pay attention to that news that it was a rumor? And I think it's been debunked now, but that Warner Brothers may be letting Henry Cavill go and not letting him do Superman anymore. Yeah, I saw that. People went nuts. I just think that's so stupid. We talked about this in our Justice League episode, but out of all the things that have gone wrong with that Warner Brothers, uh, you know, DC Extended Universe project, Henry Cavill is not the problem. I mean, it, mm-hmm. uh, there, there are people in our Facebook group, the uh, Pop Culture Cormdale Perpetual After party. Some of them love Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, and hate Justice League. I'm completely across the board. I like Justice League and I hate Batman versus Superman. Mm-hmm. But the one thing we all agree on is that Henry Cavill should, you know, be turned loose to play a really good Superman. Right. And Warner Brothers just cannot get out of their own way, man. Hmm. Well, um, speaking of the Joker, you know, Jack Nicholson set the bar super high and it took a guy like Heath Ledger to come along who was brave enough to try and he succeeded beyond, I think, everybody's wildest imaginations. So you've had these two actors do an incredible job with the role. Um, Jared Leto was just the same kind of actor who's kind of crazy enough to try it his own way and he flopped terribly. Joaquin Phoenix is another one of those guys who are brave enough to try to redefine a character that, you know, very recently sort of defining portrayals have, have been given to audiences. Um, we don't know what Phoenix will do, but you know, just considering how well Nicholson and Ledger did, how bad Leto did, and, and the kind of actor it takes to take a shot at redoing that role, are there actors you would suggest to a casting agent that could maybe do a Joker in a way that audiences love uh, to a degree that's comparable to, to Heath Ledger? Um, I would like to see a Hopkins, Anthony Hopkins. I know he's he's you know he's past the age to do it, right? Yeah. Uh, but uh, maybe an older. I don't know. Oh we yeah. So seen an, so let Anthony Joker. Hopkins do it as an older Joker. Yeah, yeah. And maybe we can bring. I don't know. Maybe there can be an older Batman. And I don't know. Maybe training. Uh, I, I would love to see a. I mean, I know it's old, but I'd love to see a Batman Beyond movie. You and me um, both, man. I think that's sitting right there. And man alive, if they're going to do two Joker movies and have one of them set in an alternate universe, let's mm-hmm. do the Batman Beyond movie right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be great if you could have an older Joker and maybe, a, I don't know, a younger version of Joker. Maybe he, someone he has mentored or I don't know. I, I'd also like to see Michael Shannon. Um Gosh. Michael Shannon. So he was in. He was in. Uh, what was his first? Um, what was his movie? He was in the original. Was it Man of Steel? Yeah, he played Zod. Yeah, um, I think he would be great. And that is a super great call. He's he's like my favorite working crazy bad guy actor. Mm-hmm. He played the bad guy in Shape of Water uh, as well. Gosh, that's a really good call. I, I'd be willing to trust him to do it too. I wish I'd have thought of that one. Um, I guess maybe in between him and Anthony Hopkins, but still on your your wavelength of an older Joker, I got a hot take for you. I'd have Michael Keaton do it. Mm. Did you did you see Birdman? 
I did not. I need to watch that. Yeah, I think you would enjoy that. I, I don't remember any, you know, nudity or crazy sexual stuff, but I look away from the screen on that stuff. And so sometimes I, I don't think it's there because I didn't see it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can check plugged in or whatever before you watch it, but he's really good. And I know you saw Spider-Man Homecoming. Yes. And uh, I mean, I he's he can do whatever. I mean, he's been in comedies. He's been in serious stuff. He did Batman well. I mean, yeah, it's actually the scene in Batman combined with what he did in Homecoming that gave me this idea. You remember there's a scene when Joker breaks into like one of Bruce Wayne's penthouses to kidnap Vicky Vale and uh, Keaton's Bruce Wayne grabs a poker from the fireplace set and he's like, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. Yeah. 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 I, it just made me think like, okay, let's, let's have him go from the cow to the, you know, the cold cream. I, I'd like to see him put on the face paint and see what he would do as the Joker. Yeah. That's a good call, man. Yeah. So Michael Shannon or Michael Keaton, we'll, we'll take either of that. You can keep Jared Leto. Um, I'm willing to believe Joaquin Phoenix can possibly pull it off, but we're going to cast one of the Michaels for, for our Joker, right? Yeah. And, and to be fair to, to Joaquin, I mean, Heath Ledger come out nowhere as far I mean, he was doing like romantic comedies, wasn't he, before? Yes. He he was a surprise hit. And of course he died, you know. I mean, like, I think that raised their anticipation, but I really don't think that we think better of the performance because he died. I think it's that good. Right. Yeah, um, it is really good. Hey, look, Joaquin Phoenix has all the acting chops in the world. And so I'm, I'm willing to believe that he, you know, can do something really original and it's weird to say enjoyable, but something that we all come away and go like, yeah, man, he captured something essential about the Joker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm no longer willing to believe that about Jared Leto, but yeah, Phoenix could could pull it off, and I hope he does because I like I like good stories set in Batman's universe. Oh yeah, and the best villain, well, in any story, I mean, he's uh, the Joker's, and he's amazing as far as a villain. Yeah, absolutely. All right, man. Well, anything else you want to cover? In uh... so sorry to interrupt. Like we're good, man. All right. Well, then we will call an end to that one, and that will bring us into the actual subject of this episode, Netflix's Next Gen. As I mentioned, they paid $30 million for that thing at the Cannes Music Festival this year. And I think they're, you know, they're trying their hand at sort of the the streaming version of of a Disney empire. So uh, let's get into it, man. Uh, Before we do, though, I want to warn people, I'm about to give the summary. And after the summary, we are in spoiler territory. So we assume after you've listened to us give the summary of the movie that you're okay with having the plot details spoiled. If that's not the case, hit pause, go watch this thing, come back and finish the episode we don't want to ruin your viewing experience. And so, fair warning, uh, we're we're about to get into plot details. Uh, Jared, I'm just going to take the summary from IMDb. Okay. So, a friendship with a top-secret robot turns a lonely girl's life into a thrilling adventure as they take on bullies, evil bots, and a scheming madman. Pretty, Pretty good. good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, conscience warning. What what stuff uh, in this movie that that our listeners might want to be prepared to to guard their conscience against? It's pretty pretty heavy violence um, as far as a, a kids movie. Um, I mean, they're someone gets vaporized. Um, there's cussing, but it's bleeped out. Um, and I think there may be some language even that gets through things that you wouldn't want your children saying. But. Yeah, you've hit on the two things that I thought of as well. Uh, I, I read one of the creators talking about this movie. He said that there's one of the reasons they had to kind of, I, I shouldn't say had to, one of the reasons Netflix ended up with this is that other distributors really didn't know how to market this movie to kids because he said there is Marvel Universe style 
style action in it, which there is a lot of violence and stuff blowing up and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder if he's underselling the fact that there are so many bad words bleeped out. Mm-hmm. The little dog uh, voiced by Michael Pena is constantly being beeped once you you know learn that the robot can translate his words. And even the mom at one point, you know, jumps on a guy and starts punching his face and is is bleeped out. Uh, I was looking on Common Sense Media as of as of our recording plugged in hasn't done anything with this movie. So I was on Common Sense Media looking and there were several parents who said, like, I, I'm not going to let my kids see this because of all the movie, uh, all the words being bleeped out. It's just not something I want to put in front of them in a movie, you know, Common Sense Media is basically a secular website. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know. Uh, I was surprised to see that on that website, and I wonder if the creators aren't misunderstanding why distributors didn't know how to think about this movie. Yeah, probably. Um, just some notes on this that I thought were interesting. This is the feature directorial debut of animation and visual effects veterans Kevin R. Adams and Joe Cassander. Uh, did you ever see that movie Nine? I think it was about like a rag doll, and it, it just visually mm-hmm. was very different looking. I did. Mm-hmm. They were both involved in that as creators, but they've apparently done a ton of stuff in different, you know, uh, different universes and, and films. So I think it's Adams who's done a bunch of work with Disney Studios and Cassander has been involved in like the Transformers franchise and Pacific Rim and, uh, you know, big budget action movies. Did mm. um, Real quick, Nine, that, that movie they were previously involved in, is that worth watching? I have no idea, man. I don't remember it. Mm. Um, I've seen it, but I do not remember it. I think at one point it was on Netflix. It may still be on there, but I've never watched it either. Hey, this I thought was even more interesting. So this movie is based on a comic book from China named, uh, titled 7723, written by Wong Nima, and it is in the category or genre of rage comic. Are you familiar with Rage Comics? Mm-mm. So I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but Rage Comics are a genre in China. And um, I guess when I think of Chinese animation and comics, I think of manga and anime, but uh, this is a kind of a category onto itself. And it originates from a comic site called Baozu, which has more than or had more than 10 million followers on the Chinese social media site Weibo and over 245,000 subscribers on YouTube. But, yeah, they're apparently huge. And I guess they were involved even in financing this movie. Um, apparently, the comic does not look much like the the movie. It's a totally different artistic style. But the interesting thing to me is that these rage comics, uh, I guess, enraged the Chinese government. Um, hmm. In May of this year, the government shut down several different Baozu channels, including that Weibo page that had so many followers, because there was someone wearing one of their rage comic characters masks um, that someone wearing one of those masks posted a video on some social media site making fun of a communist hero uh, a guy who was a, a martyr for communism my goodness so in China apparently there's this act it's a it, it, it's a legal precedent instituted by the government that you can't make fun of this list of people they consider martyrs and heroes to the Communist Party of China dude they are a bunch of weenies my goodness I mean last time we talked about Winnie the Pooh and they were they were banning 
winning the Pooh. I mean, come on. Isn't it crazy? Like, your ideas are so fragile. They have to be protected from Winnie the Pooh and, you know, a, a guy wearing a comic book character mask. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so uh, 7723 was, again, written by Wong Nima. And I hope Wong Nima has cashed some of that $30 million and is living somewhere in some capitalistic <laughs> utopia. <laughs> where, where those exist? Where? where <laughs> <laughs> well, the irony is I've, I've read this in several different business publications that beyond like the social controls of communism, China has become very capitalistic in their economy. So really? that is yeah. very interesting. Yeah. It turns out socialists like to make money. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. The top, the top yeah, ones. Right. Exactly. Yeah. All right, man. So enough political commentary. Um, let's start chopping this thing up. So guys, what we do, if this is your first episode, uh, we take the story of whatever film we're looking at and we compare it against the story that God is telling about his son, Jesus Christ, through history. And the story that God is actually telling in reality is one that we think uh, divides up into four different parts. The first being creation. God spoke his creation into existence and saw that it was good. The second category is fall. This good creation uh, is ruined when God's image bearers choose the path of rebellion and they bring death and chaos, destruction into God's good creation through that rebellion. Uh, but God is committed to his purposes and he will see to it that they, uh, his own purposes are not thwarted. So he sends a Messiah, a Savior, who is fully God and fully man, his son, Jesus Christ, who restores this fallen creation through his willing uh, sacrifice of himself and obedience to his father and love to his people. And through that sacrifice, God creates a better world. And so he raises his Messiah from the dead and installs him at the head of the cosmic government of uh, of just, it's hard to not get excited thinking about it, but the, the cosmic government that will always be under the administration of Christ and a new world is born and uh, exists perpetually thereafter. So we go through these stories and, and see if they're telling us the truth about God's ultimate story in reality. With that in mind, Jared, what is what is the creational view of the world in next gen? It's a futuristic world where robots are everywhere. So humans have become dependent on robots and the main character, May, hates robots because when her father left, her mother bought robots to kind of help um, and it left May feeling neglected and alone. Sure. Um, so I, mean, I guess there's some bleed into the fallenness of this world here, but I did, you know, I did appreciate that this is a world where humans are still creators, right? Tolkien mm-hmm. called us sub-creators. You know, we create from what God originally created. So sub-creators have been inventing and they created these robots. In the process, they've created a world of great luxury and a really high standard of living. Now there's there's negative consequences, but you know, I, I was happy to see that this gets the gets the reality that made in the, you know that humans made in the image of a creator are also going to continue to create. And mm-hmm. since they are both made in the image of God and fallen, they're going to make some good things. Things, some bad things, and some that are a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. Uh, this movie, I think, in a lot of ways, harkens back to other movies in, in the sense you were just describing uh, of, of a world dependent on dependent on robots. You, you kind of see shades of Wall-E, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good call. Yeah, this is like four or five generations before the events of Wall-E. Uh, what about Fallen, this Jared? Um, I think with fallenness, it's about broken relationships. I think May's uh, relationship with her father um, being broken before his death, and then her relationship with her mother, and then her classmates, um, and even with technology until you know she meets Project Seventy Seven. 
Yeah, and you know, just as a tip of the cap to the creators of this movie, all of that is communicated within the first like four minutes of the movie, probably less actually, first mm-hmm. couple minutes of the movie through a really well done opening montage. Mm-hmm. No words whatsoever, but you see, you know, this young lady abandoned by her father and her mother, although in different ways. You see her become consumed with rage, be alienated from everybody, looking for ways to lash out. And it mm-hmm. all happens without a, a bit of dialogue. Yeah. I, just one other thing to add to the the fallenness uh, pictured in this movie. We see uh, that in the world of next gen, technology is crowding out humanity, mm-hmm. uh, not by like installing robot overlords, although that's part of the the story. But it, it's through constant distraction. These people are technology addicts. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what about redemption? I think when their her relationships are restored. Yeah. Um, that's redemption. Yeah. So what I wrote down was that eventually technology shows itself a false messiah and a wicked ruler. Yeah, but she's still, I think, technology used in the right way. It's kind of odd that a robot saves her, isn't it? From a robot. He saves everybody and even makes statements that, I don't know, I think the movie tips its hat to... Technology is always going to be with us. We just need better technology. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's a fair accusation. Um, you, you were talking about how her relationships were restored. So, you know, I'm watching this thing and, and the bad guy shows himself. And there's this, you know, there's this scene where he kidnaps May's mother, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this magically opens the eyes of May's mom to the way she's abandoned her daughter for technological distraction. And in the same you know, vein, May is forced to deal with her own anger at being abandoned. Um, and she even finds empathy with those that she's kind of traded out being the tormentor with, you know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I thought it was a little too convenient and a little too underdeveloped. You know, it's like this crisis happened and the crisis fixes everything. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm asking too much of a of an animated movie. Yeah, eh, good story. Good story. You know. Yeah. Did you notice? I didn't think this was interesting. I think in some ways, Project Seventy Seven is supposed to become more humanized. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And did you notice that his voice got less robot robotic the more he interacted with May? I did not notice that, but that's that's fascinating. Yeah, it, it became much more like Jim from The Office. It starts out with sort of sounding like someone speaking through a, a robotic synthesizer. Mm-hmm. But by the end of the movie, well, before he resets himself, but, you know, by the by the point he's most developed in the in the film, he sounds more human. I thought it was a pretty good storytelling point. That's interesting. And I, I mean, that's I mean, that's how movies get us to care about. Um, well, basically characters that aren't human. Um, they humanize them, and it's the same way with getting us to care for animals, getting us to care for, I mean, you name it. You know, they they try to make it um, look human or mimic humanity. Like even even when we watch Jurassic uh, World, um, you know, the the dinosaur, the raptor, Velociraptor crying and um, smiling, smiling, and yeah, I, I mean, it's just uh, because they can't. Uh, we've talked about that. They you can't animalize the humans. Because then, well, we'll de- we won't value them, and so you got to humanize everything else that you want humans to care about. Well, you, I mean, you can dehumanize. That's a that's a technique that plays out way too often in the real world, right? Like we have sure. the language of you know feed us and bundle of cells to dehumanize human offspring, so it's sure. more convenient to dispose of without your conscience erupting. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good point. But I mean, they can't. So I guess they <clears throat> they humanize what they want you to view as a person. Yeah, and dehumanize and, uh, what you, they want you to to treat unhumanely. Yeah. 
All right. So once we have this movie chopped up, um, which what about glor- glorification? Yeah. yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So yeah, glorification, Jared. Um, it happens when May's relationships are restored. She's no longer rebellious and she lives happily ever after with her family, friends and technology. Yeah, it's super quick, too. We only get to see this better world she lives in super fast. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, the the image we get is of like this little pocket of nature built around a soccer, a soccer field. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's like this little refuge in this world of concrete and steel and glass, you know, mm-hmm. if anything, I wish they would have spent some more time fleshing out what, you know, what her life looks like now that things are set in order. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm with you on that glorification. And what I was chomping at the bit to get to is once we go through these categories and, and chop the story up, according to those individual elements, we try to put it back together and analyze the thing. And so we ask a couple questions. The first of those questions is, what's the story? And we hope to get it right, which we hope we've just done by analyzing the, the worldview of the movie. We hope we've got the story right. The, the next question is, where am I? And we're there trying to see the style and shape of the imaginary world. Jared, you want to take and run with that? Yeah, I thought the I thought the special effects were really good. Um, I thought the I thought the story was well done. Um, I enjoyed May's character. Enjoyed the robot Project Seventy Seven's character. Um, I didn't care for look. Look, you got to know your audience. Netflix, you know. <laughs> If we're going to show this to our kids, we, we don't want to, to them to hear bleeping cuss words like where they can even st- still see the mouths moving, you know, and kind of tell what's being said if they have any knowledge of cuss words. Right. Um, parents don't want that. Um, and so I understand, like you said, the marketing, um, how to market this movie when it, it's got needless things. It doesn't add to the story. Uh, learn from Pixar and learn from Disney. Um, but anyway, so I thought the special, the I say special effects. I thought the animation was really well done. Yeah, the visual effects, right? Yeah, visual effects. I thought it was. I thought the voices were excellent as far as acting. And I, I you know, props on that. I, I bet it's super hard to sit with a, a video and. I guess they're watching the video while they try to mouth the voices. You know, I've, I've watched some making of's on this, and, and different studios do it differently. Sometimes they'll say, hey, read this line this way, and it's just a guy in front of a microphone. And then I think sometimes they do play the scene for them. I don't know what they did on Next Gen, but I'm with you. It sounds like difficult work. Now, Kevin Conroy... Um, Mark Hamill, those guys have made careers as voice actors, but it, it seems like it'd be difficult to me. Oh yeah, man, I yeah, I'd be real hard. It'd be, I guess, it's similar to play acting or stage acting. Um, you've got to you've got to put everything in your voice, like you know what I'm saying, like like uh, it's not it's not like people can see your face and see Gesture, you can act through yeah. your jet body language and everything. You've got to act solely through your voice. Um, yeah, and I think Krasinski pulled that off. I mean, he's the one doing a lot of the heavy lifting. I'm not familiar with the the lady who who voiced May, but uh, I would say she as well. Like these are emotional roles they're playing. Did you know Sadakis was in this? Uh, yeah, I think he does a really good bad guy, man. Yeah, he does. He, you know, he might be, give him the Joker. I wonder if he could do anything with the Joker. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'd like to see him try it out on like some DC animated first, but yeah, he's, he's a guy who has shown that he has more within him than just the comedic guy we first met, you know, mm-hmm. that's a good point. I'm just thinking through where I'm at and seeing this imaginary world. 
I feel like this movie is kind of a blender version of Big Hero 6, The mm-hmm. Iron Giant, uh, but also Inside Out. The The movie is so visually and thematically like Big Hero 6 that my uh, seven-year-old daughter is convinced that the same people made the movie. She thinks this is just the same creative team as Big Hero 6. Really? I enjoyed Big Hero 6 better. Yeah, I, I th- I'm with you. But you kind of docked your cap to like the studio that gave us Big Hero 6 has been churning out hit after hit after hit, right? Mm-hmm. I feel the same way about the Iron Giant. I like the Iron Giant better. But mm. uh, nonetheless, I can see I can see those movies in the genetic code. I also think Inside Out because of the, the theme of, um, of an adolescent girl trying to reconcile herself emotionally. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a big issue here. Uh, anything else there on question two? No, I think, I mean, I identify with her some, but, um, you know, just the rebellious nature of being a teenager and it being difficult and reconciliation and your various relationships, being bullied, things like that. Yeah, um, I mean, you would, you're looking for a savior in those situations, right? You don't know how to, you yeah. know how to get out of your own head and your own emotional turmoil, but then you add in stuff like bullies and complex relationships with parents and you, you would be excited to find a super robot who could make you feel like you could get your hands around some of those problems. Yeah, dude. I mean, you grew up, we both went to the same middle school and, um, you know, I was seventh grade. My seventh grade was awful and your eighth grade was awful. Am I right about that? Yeah, that's right. And uh, it was because, um, you know, we couldn't pull strings like some of our buddies could. And uh, we I was literally stuck in. I, I had no friends like I was, I was stuck in a mod. They broke us up into two different almost two different schools in the same grade, like put us on one wing, put like half of us on one wing, put the other half on the other wing and we never saw each other. Yeah. Except for like the rare school assembly, you know, every now and then they'd take us out to the football field uh, we could see everybody, but you're right. It was like two different worlds. So in seventh grade, dude, I hung out with all the potheads. I mean, it, it was, I mean, I, I didn't mess with it, but sure, Jared, <laughs> I've never, I've never, <laughs> <laughs> I've never smoked pot, but I was around it a lot in my seventh grade year because those were my buddies. They were my homeroom. I mean, um, I mean, I, most of those guys that I hung out with, they, uh, I for real, I think that every one of them dropped out of high school, like oh, freshman gosh. or soft, sophomore year. Yeah. I'm not kidding. Yeah, I, was, I, I believe it. I mean, I could probably name some of the same people. That's just a. It's just a tragedy, man. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a, uh, but it's just, it's just interesting. I was just in a different world that I wasn't, that I wasn't used to. But I did, I did make friends. But, um, <laughs> but, but your eighth grade year was like that, and so, and I was short, I was small, and so it was an easy target for bullies that year too. And I don't know. You'd like to have your just own rough. Project seventy three, wouldn't you? Or seventy seven? What is he? Project what? Seventy seven. I 77. believe seventy seven. Okay. Yeah. If I, yeah, I, the temptation for revenge, the desire for revenge. Uh, um, and then corn came in the picture there, and yeah. the band corn, not the yeah <laughs> delectable summer treat. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I did. I, I appreciated her the emphasis on grace and mercy to bullies. Well, we need to talk about that a little bit more. But before we do, I think that's a good transition into question three. What's good, true, and awesome here? And behold, common grace. I say it's a good transition because this movie really does want to deal with bigger ideas, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let me just throw a few of these at you. Um, One, I think it is getting at the idea that um, as a society, we're having to watch parents 
distraction with technology and the detriment that brings to children. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, technology and the way it affects humans is is a personal interest of mine. And it seems like the magazine The Atlantic has been doing a lot of writing on this. Let me throw two quotes at you from fairly recent articles, both from 2018. Um, first one is from Phones Are Changing the Texture of Family Life by Joe Pinkser. And this was published on the Atlantic website uh, August 22nd of this year. So just about a month ago, there was a poll taken about family technology uh, use. And 72% of parents in the survey said that their teenagers were sometimes or often distracted by their phones during conversations. Okay. 72% Mm -hmm. of parents thought that. Uh, Pinkser goes on to write, though, more interestingly, roughly half of teens felt the same way about their parents. Hmm. And in the in that piece by Pinkser or Pinsker, Pinsker, excuse me, I can't speak. Sorry. I'm Southern. <laughs> Pinsker. He cites another article that the Atlantic did called The Dangers of Distracted Parenting. And this is from the July, August 2018 issue. And the the author there is describing how technology is affecting parenting. And the the image that goes with the article is great. It's sort of this um, faceless mom holding a faceless baby. And there are lines drawn to all the things she's paying attention to, like a tablet and a TV and her smartphone, you know, all this stuff going on. Baby's in her arms. So her eyes have all these connections to different devices, mm. but the connection from her mouth is to the child. And so mm. I thought this was really something that was powerful for me to consider as a father. Um, here's the quote, a mother telling kids to go out and play, a father saying he needs to concentrate on a chore for the next half hour. These are entirely reasonable responses to the competing demands of adult life. What's going on today, however, is the rise of unpredictable care governed by the beeps and enticements of smartphones. We seem to have stumbled into the worst model of parenting imaginable, always physically present, thereby blocking children's autonomy, yet only fitfully present emotionally. So we're Hmm. always hovering around them, but they never have our full attention, and yet they're still subject to our distracted commands. I get why the author called it the worst imaginable way to parent. And like when I read that, I kind of got chills because I know what it's like to be on my laptop or texting somebody and my kids needing something or my kids just doing something that's too loud and I rebuke them for it. And I'm not parenting them. I'm just I'm silencing them so I can get back to my smartphone. And uh, man, it was convictional to read that. Yeah, you need to post that on uh, Pop Culture Quorum Day or Perpetual After Party. I need to read that because, dude, I'm I'm grading papers for Southern. I'm um, writing the dissertation. I'm working on sermons. I'm. It's just always something. Yeah, and church members text, or I want to find out what happened in the you know the NFL games. I didn't get to watch. I, yeah. I will. I'll throw that up. But you know, for all the problems I have with the Atlantic, I keep a subscription to them because on on tech they are publishing some really interesting stuff. I'm gonna I'm gonna quote them again. Uh, but this movie wants to put in front of us that parents, not just children, but parents, are being warped by their obsession with technology. Um, I think more broadly, this movie wants to talk about society's distraction with technology. Mm-hmm. Um, again, quote from an issue of The Atlantic, this one dating back to 2015. It was a um, another poll, or excuse me, a survey, and um, you know they're kind of commenting on the results. So this one is called Push Notifications Are As Distracting As Phone Phone Calls. This is by Robinson Meyer, and it's from, um, I think, the June or July 15 issue of The Atlantic. Uh, let me just run through this one real quick. So the 
researchers did a uh, a performance study. This is three researchers at Florida State University. They did a performance evaluation as it pertains to interaction with technology. And their survey suggests that merely receiving a push notification, so your phone dinging to let you know, hey, you've got a text message whenever you can read it, or somebody tweeted you, something like that. Receiving a push notification is as distracting as responding to the text message or even a phone call. Uh, They found that Mm. performance in their assessment suffered if the student received any kind of audible notification. Uh, Just quoting here, that is, every kind of phone distraction was equally destructive to their performance. An eruptive ping distracted people just as much as a shrilled, sustained ringing tone. And it didn't matter, too, if the student ignored the text or didn't answer the phone. As long as they got a notification and they knew they got it, their test performance suffered. Hmm. The researchers said that our results suggest that mobile phones can disrupt attention performance even if one does not interact with the device. As mobile phones become integrated into more and more tasks, it may become increasingly difficult for people to set their phones aside and concentrate fully on the task at hand, whatever that may be. And, you know, in some ways, like, I remember my wife, when she saw this, she's like, well, no, duh, phones distract us. But we do have this idea that we can be multitaskers and that, Mm -hmm. you know, if we're really being disciplined, we'll just ignore those text messages. But according to this, just the knowledge and hearing it is enough to throw us off our game just as badly as if we'd taken a phone call. See, addiction. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. I think that's important for this movie because the bad guy in this movie is a robot who impersonates a human. Mm-hmm. And I think there's obviously the specter of artificial intelligence raised there, right? We think of Skynet and all the sci-fi movies we grew up on. But I think we can go more immediate than that. We're thinking through the issues this movie raises. You know, and I mean, one another obvious one, there are a lot of chat bots that handle introductory customer service now. You know, a lot of Mm -hmm. times when you're chatting with someone on a website, you're just chatting with a bot and it'll eventually figure off, figure how to hand you off to someone. Mm -hmm. But I really think even more immediately, it's just our own cell phones. Um, So if the phone beeps and vibrates in a way that we react to when we hear them, the question for me becomes who's really in control here? Who's driving the car in my relationship to technology? Now we think like, oh, I set my phone up to let me know about stuff I want to know. But if you were a space alien who just came in to observe human society, you would think these boxes that we carry around in our pockets around our lives because when they beep or trill, we treat that as a summons to attend to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't think I cared about Next Gen, particularly the first time I watched it. I watched it again preparing for this episode and I realized like the idea of a human taking, excuse me, a robot taking over a human, that's not a bad metaphor for me and my smartphone. Mm-hmm. Am, I, am I too crazy here, Jared? Do I have a tinfoil hat on? No, and I, I think that it's a way, I mean, being being a pastor, we know that it's a blessing and a curse, right? Um, yeah. I mean, we, we know that at least somewhat. Um, the best thing about it is that people can reach you when they need you. And the worst thing about it is people can reach you when they think they need you. Um, yes, but even that seems like a higher class version of some of the stuff I find myself dealing with. Yeah. You know, I have went through and told Twitter not to notify me about most of the notifications it wants to send me. But when I hear my phone say, hey, you got a text message or here's a notification about some social media thing, I kind of want to go check that pretty quickly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll... I mean, my my leg will vibrate when my phone's not even in my pocket. Oh yeah, it's like a phantom phone call you receive. It's like phantom limb pain. I don't I don't know what it is. It's it weirds me out though. Like, like wait a second, my phone ain't in my pocket. Why am I feeling it? Yeah, uh, but I I don't know if it's 
I don't know. It's got to be a brain thing. It's got to be a, I'm so used to it or it's a conditioning thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's something strange. It was probably, you know, 10 years from now, they'll probably say, Hey, this is what this is. Um, but yeah, I think, I think you're, you've hit the nail on the head, but we, it's, but this isn't something new. It's, it's the TV always having to be on when we were kids. Um, our daddy's always having to have that noise. Um, a dependence on technological noise. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. um, Well, some of the same stuff that Atlantic is publishing, you know, that it's kind of like what Christian Smith did with moralistic therapeutic deism when he found out that that's the religious default setting for American teenagers several years ago. Mm-hmm. Kenda Creasy Dean came along and said, oh, yeah, OK, what what's that like for their parents? And she found out that the parents had handed it down to the children. Mm. And the Atlantic is publishing stuff saying that basically kids are learning their technology habits from their parents. Yeah, I mean, that, that definitely makes sense. But how do we keep our kids? So we basically just limit our kids technology. You know, my daughter, my nine year old's asking for a phone because her friends have phones. Um, well, I've know. mentioned on here before, there's a there's a professor at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, that's really impacted my thinking on this. His name's Justin Barnard. And a lot of the stuff he's you know said publicly on technology and thinking about it as a Christian is available through a Google search. I really recommend anyone who's the least bit interested in this tracking that down. I try to put up some resources on that on uh, the after party. But, you know, he points out that technology, you know, we approach it as a tool and every tool has the capacity for good and for harm. And he made the statement years ago that he said, your smartphone, this was back when it was like the first generation iPhones or, you know, maybe two generations in. He says, that thing has more power than a bandsaw. And yet we, we think very little of handing a kid a smartphone or a tablet. We'd never hand them a table saw. Mm-hmm. And he's right. I think it was him at another time. He said, in some ways, your your smartphone is a portal to hell. And we hand it to the kid like a babysitter and say, go play your games or watch YouTube videos. Oh, yeah. YouTube. Yeah, we don't we don't let our kids do that or they don't have any social media or um, I mean, I know they will eventually, but I'm hoping that their brains and their consciences are uh, prepared enough by the word and a relationship with Christ by the end that um, they'll make good decisions. Yeah, we've got kind of the same deal. My son is about the same age as uh, your daughter. And, you know, he's talking to me about like classmates who are having who are getting phones. And Christy was telling me about this campaign she saw advertised, uh, wait till eight. You know, it's like be a good parent, wait till eight to get them their own phone. And I really don't want to pick a fight with any listeners and the choices they made in their household. But wait till eight <laughs> floored me. Uh, are you sure it wasn't a, it's not a spoof? It's not a. Now, this is from my wife, but she said it was a public service announcement. Oh, my goodness, man. And maybe she got, you know, maybe she got fooled. But I mean, based on what I see in their Christian private school, a lot of parents who are very thoughtful about their children are not waiting till eight. So it's it's easy for me to believe that someone would launch a campaign like that. And my, my daughter, who's younger than yours, was in the room while we were talking about this. And she's like, oh, when I turn eight, can I get a phone? <laughs> And my wife just laughed and she said, I mean, we're not doing everything right with technology. I'm not trying to claim that at all. But she laughed and said, have you met your dad? You won't get a phone when you're 28 if he has anything to do with it. Yeah, that's uh, she's got you pegged, man. Uh, uh, Yeah, I'm not really 
I'm not really that reactionary, I don't think. No, but you know we're going to reap the whirlwind, though. Like, Well, I cannot imagine giving my daughter a phone. You know, it's hard for me to conceive of giving her one before she's driving. Oh, I know. I, I and mean, then a flip phone. You, you know? had one before. Didn't you have one? Like, I remember, I didn't get one until I was in college. But I yeah. remember you guys having them when y'all were driving. Yeah, speaking of, speaking of parents teaching children, my dad was the first person I knew to have a cellular telephone. He had a bag phone in his car. Oh, that's cool. And that was, you know, that was because of his business. He was legitimately needful of that. I was probably the first kid I knew to have a cell phone. Yeah. And I'm sure knowing my parents and, and how generous they were, that they would have been happy to provide me a cell uh, smartphone. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but that was one of those things, man. They didn't know, like coming into this stuff, yeah. like like it, it's the same way with technology. Like I I came, I mean, I was allowed to watch whatever growing up. Were, were you too? I mean, was there any limits? Yeah. I mean, it was basically though, whatever my parents knew in advance I was watching. But I remember lots of nights getting up when they were asleep and just turning on TV. Um, yeah. I remember one time my mom knew I was watching Beavis and Butthead. Talk about a, <laughs> talk about a time capsule. And she didn't want me, you know, she'd read all these alerts about kids watching Beavis and Butthead. And so I, I just gambled. I just remember very self-consciously being like, oh, I'll just take a shot. And I said, Mom, why don't you watch an episode with me? And if you still think it's as awful as you've heard, I won't watch it anymore. And I was young. <laughs> and uh, she sat down and watched an episode with me. And it just happened to be the cleanest, you know, most parent-friendly episode of that show that had ever been <laughs> aired. And, it, you know, it was crude. But she's like, eh, I'm not crazy that you like that. But that's not nearly as bad as what I've heard. And I was like, hey, the gamble paid off. So y'all what? Y'all still watch Beavis and Butthead so together? I, I, well, she wouldn't forbid me. She wouldn't watch it with me. But but, okay. you know, like if, if she walked through the room and it was on and she didn't stop to listen to what they were saying or doing. Yeah. Because she had seen that one episode, you know, I, hmm. I, it's not because my mom was incompetent. It's like you said, she just wasn't prepared for the world to change as quickly as it did through mm-hmm. mass media. And, and yeah, technology is infinitely, at least in my opinion, infinitely more uh, dangerous. Now, you know, the potential for profit is much better, too, but it's infinitely more dangerous. There's more power in the thing. So and this movie is a good one to, to kind of raise that around your family table if you have dinner after you watch the movie or you know whatever let me talk with you just a minute about like my son my son's conscience is very sensitive my oldest um 10 years old about to be 11 um you know i i put on so black panthers on netflix and um i was gonna let him watch it by himself and he put it on and he voluntarily turned it off because one of the characters flip flipped. You know, the there's that scene where uh is it oh was it what's his name? T'Challa. 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 Yeah. T'Challa's younger sister flips him off. And um my son turned it off. He said, I wanna watch this with you. Um, I don't know. He, his conscience is so and so. I'm bringing that up because I don't want him to watch things that conv- that make him feel bad. You know, even yeah. if um, even if I see that as. But see, I didn't think of that as a conscience issue, but he'll turn his head and mm-hmm. um, and I want his conscience to be what it is. I want it to be sensitive. If he gets away from that, I don't want it to be because of me, because mine is yeah, less, less sensitive. sensitive, less sensitive than his, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would just see that as the work of the spirit, either, you know, regenerating your son or through just the benefits of being in a Christian household. So praise the Lord for that. I oh, think yeah. it's, not, it's not just that. It's violence. It's 
I mean, it's everything. I think your instinct to honor his conscience is right. I mean, we tell our churches this all the time, right? What did Luther say? It's neither right nor safe to go against your conscience. Right. You know, I do think probably his dad's, we're we're away from this, but you've always got to have the vision of launching your child into the world as an mm-hmm. adult in front of your head. You know what I mean? Like you, sure. I think sometimes families lose that vision. And so the shelter becomes kind of a spider's web. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not where your 10 year old is at right now. And teaching him to that it's a good thing when the conscience is defiled by something on something as unimportant as a movie to turn mm-hmm. that thing off and to not, you know, not see that as something to be embarrassed by, man. Yeah. Just good for you, big guy. And <laughs> here's a reward of some kind. You want to go get pizza? Like, I, I think reinforcing his desire to honor his conscience is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I just I was just curious about that. I mean, I, I know that'll change as he gets older, um, but um, I was very similar to him, to that when I was young, when I was well, when I was really young, but a lot younger than him. To harken, to harken back to an earlier part of this episode, and then corn came in. Yeah, and then corn, and exactly right. I mean, I'm talking about like you know third grade. I was I was younger. I was very sensitive, but but then you know that kind of went out the window when I hung out with the potheads. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, public school. Thank you, government school. Oh, and the school bus. I would never yeah. let my yeah. kid ride the school bus. I I learned basically. <laughs> I'll, Every, yeah, it's like the inverse of that chart. Everything I needed to know, I learned in kindergarten. Everything I should have never known, I learned on the school bus. Exactly right. Everything. I mean, they had alcohol. They had drugs. They had, I mean, there was pornography on the school bus. A kid a kid passed me my first triple X rated. Uh, it was a video cassette back then when I was in fifth grade on the school bus. Fifth grade. Yeah. And another kid fifth when I was grade. in seventh grade sold me, uh, I remember three or four of his dad's Playboys. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, dude. That, see that? And I, I was offered pot. I think I was fourth grade. It's the yeah. first time. Um, fourth grade, man. My my daughter's in fourth grade. Oh, I know, man. I, I mean, Nine years old. It hurts my stomach for her to know some of the things even exist in the world as a possibility that I was watching and you know, laughing at and consuming at that age. Good grief. That's so crazy to think about. I mean, I guess we're off on a separate podcast called Dad Corner, but... <laughs> That it's to the credit of this movie that it does make you think as a parent. You know, some movies we we praise because they're kids' movies that that make parents laugh as well. Again, Next Gen is not a movie that I came away being like I really like that one, mm-hmm. but it made me think about some really important issues, and I'm glad for that. And I think it's it's the kind of movie that can put good stuff in front of your family. This is why mm-hmm. we we aren't going to let you guys have a cell phone. This is why we're not going to you know turn you loose on YouTube. I, I think that this movie is good for that. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else on what's praiseworthy in this movie? No, I think we, we hit some good things. Yeah, we hit some good things. Then we went off the trail <laughs> to look for some more. We've come back around. So, yeah. It's like a sermon. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. We have texts for sermons. Uh, yeah. So, hey, Jared, what's distorted evil and false here? Where's idolatry? How can we subvert it? I think this movie tips its hat towards that one day technology will be as legitimate as a human relationship. Um. I think it, I think that's what it's saying. With you're never alone when you've got a cubot. Well, and that and um, Project Seventy Seven at one point says our memories make us who we are. And so I'm curious what they're getting at with emphasizing that with this robot and this. Um, I don't know. I was just 
trying to think through what they're saying. I don't know if they're talking about trying to make the case for social media. I don't know if they're trying to make or humanizing him because he had memories that he cherished and felt affection for her. Maybe he was becoming equivalent to a human. Yes. And Hmm. so I hadn't thought about that. that. That's what I'm curious about. Like if they're if they're trying to look down the road, like I I don't know enough about AI. Um, I mean, I've seen interviews with people who do. And they they argue that AI is creating AI or that it's going to be creating AI, um, which I don't even know what that looks like when your AI can create even smarter AI. Um, But I think they're trying to wrestle with the assumption that one day we will have to redefine what makes a human human. And uh, because the AI is going to become equivalent as far as, um, well, I mean, it's going to be just as smarter, smarter than we are. Yeah, maybe even have. Yeah. I mean, like stuff you've seen in, in the, the latest Blade Runner, for instance, like yeah. his life companion is a is a program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we we've got to get back to the, you know, Adam and Eve. I mean, what makes a human a human? And it's a human nature. Um, joined with a human person. And that, that is what makes a human being a human being. And, um, you know, or people people talk about, you know, being self-aware um, and I, self-conscious type stuff. But I, I think we need to, to emphasize human nature, human person, because once you start saying other things, I, you may be able to, because I don't know, AI may eventually become self-aware. Yeah, yeah, um, and uh, we're gonna have to go. We're gonna have to get back to the Bible. We're gonna have to get back to Scripture. Um, yeah, I mean, what happened? You know, they're already making sex robots. What happens when a sex robot becomes self-conscious and people want to marry him? Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, we we've got to get back to just the simple biblical description of what um, what is a person, and uh, robots cannot be persons. Animals cannot be persons. Yeah, when when Project 77 says that our memories make us who we are, my daughter looked up and said, Dad, is that true? And I, I want to like throw a bone to the creators. It seems true. Mm-hmm. Um, but I told her, I was like, that that would be really bad for Nana. Um, so my dad's, uh, my dad's wife is in late stages of dementia, mm-hmm. and most of her memories are gone at this point. And I said, yeah, you know, Nana's very sick, and it's really changed a lot about her life, but she's still who she is, even though her memories have been taken from her by this disease. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, who can look at someone who's at the late stages of that kind of disease and say that they've not been changed, you know, outwardly. Mm-hmm. Sure. But the default setting I want for my daughter is that even as someone who I mean, her cognitive function is just so reduced, I want my daughter to go, oh, she's she's an image bearer and she has dignity. And mm-hmm. there's something inherent about who she is that even the loss of memory can't take away. Absolutely. And so it, God is the one who determines who we are. Yeah. And, um, and not only that, but concerning salvation, who we are in Christ, it is Christ remembering us that saves us. Amen. It is not our memory of Him. That's I mean, exactly where I took my daughter. I said, honey, you know, whatever changes she's went through, Christ is going to be faithful to her. And Christ will remember who she is. And Christ mm-hmm. will restore her to the fullness of who He made her to be in eternity. Because He's faithful. There's no disease that will touch His memory. Mm-hmm. And it, it hits how close to home with me as well. My mom with Parkinson's, her her, her brain is slowly being destroyed. Mm. Um, and if she lives long enough, 
she'll forget all of us. Um, you know, and so just thinking through that and how um, the faithfulness of Christ and, you know, I'm just thankful. Amen. Amen. Well, if I can go maybe not so somber, I'm um, talking about evil in this. <laughs> May is just the absolute worst. <laughs> Um, I'm going to hit you with this. I mentioned Christian Smith and moralistic therapeutic deism earlier, mm-hmm. right? So it's this, um, it's basically the default setting of our culture religiously is that, you know, there's probably a God who exists, but to whatever degree he's a, a real thing, he's sitting in heaven to actualize my hopes and my dreams. And the way I get him to do that is to be a good person defined by whatever I happen to think is good. Uh, but even if I'm ill, he's still going to have my back because he's just that, you know, that great big buddy in the sky. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me like May is the animated incarnation of moralistic therapeutic deism. Mm. You know, Project 77 loves her with no expectations whatsoever, and she uses him to fix all of her perceived problems. She breaks with him as soon as he fails to immediately meet her expectations or do what she wants. Um, and, and, you know, you see with May, as soon as she gets the chance, she's no better than the bullies who tormented her. Right. As soon as she gets any power, she just becomes the exact same person they are. And then she goes further. They, you know, with the robot, she basically becomes a domestic terrorist. Yeah. You know, she's just going around destroying stuff. And I really think like with her, I think, well, I'd like to know actually, but with her, she's not far away from being a school shooter. Mm. I mean, that scene in the, in like the playground where the bullies, she kind of jumps out of the bushes on them mm-hmm. and six project 77 on her, you know, the, the break comes when they have the Greenwood girl underneath this, you know, like jungle gym that's become a prison. And she says, blaster. And I'm yeah, like, that's crazy. What's the difference here? You know, like, what's the difference here between her and Eric Harris uh, or Dylan Klebold from Columbine? Yeah. And I, I can't figure out one why Project 77 is so devoted to her. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a way that maybe even you would interpret this movie that it's a good thing that he is. But I want to know why. Why is he so fascinated with this awful little girl and so committed to her. And I also can't figure out if the creators of this movie want us to root for her. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I want to guard my children's heart from from rooting for her. We can all rejoice at the end that she becomes a different person, but mm-hmm. she's kind of terrifying. Yeah. Doesn't she have, she has mercy on the bully finally though, right? Well, yeah, but it's after 77 says, what? She's a yeah. child. And then, yeah. uh, and then May like gets mad at him. Mm-hmm. Um, which I realize she's trying to figure out her own rage. I, I mean, I, I want to be sympathetic to her. But again, I'm assuming their own sense of alienation and rage is driving some of the people who shoot up schools. That's not a that's not a you know a, a moral blank check to do whatever you want. Right. And we've seen you're making great points, man, because I mean, when a shooting happens, it's often emphasized, well, they were bullied, well, they were, I mean, I was bullied yeah. in middle school. I didn't bring a gun and shoot anybody. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm I, not the exemplar. I'm not saying that, like, because I didn't, I'm some better case, but, like, there sure. was a sense that that just wasn't an option. It didn't matter how bad things got for me. Right. I wasn't allowed to go there. And, then, right. you know, we, so we graduated either the year before or the year after Columbine, and mm-hmm. that was a game changer. I read a study not too long ago, I think 
think it was Malcolm Gladwell, maybe even older, like from 2013. But he said that up until that point that he'd written that every school shooter had in some way referenced the Columbine shooters in their own, you know, plans or descriptions or whatever. And so, I mean, we watch kids our age make a different choice, Mm -hmm. but it just wasn't on the table. Yeah. Yeah. I do think the Christian faith is really helpful here because the Christian faith tells you that there is a category of profitable suffering and a a, a guaranteed future reckoning. Now, I'm Mm -hmm. not saying that I was necessarily living self-consciously in those realities, but like I could say, yeah, Christ suffered. And I mean, I remember doing this with some of the bullies, like he knows what this is like and he went through it and like finding identification with him in some ways. Again, Mm -hmm. I handled so much imperfectly, but I'm I'm thankful that at that point I was able to draw on that to whatever degree I did. Uh, I'm glad the faith gives us that. And and May is the complete anti- you know, antithesis of that idea. Yeah. Mine was, you know, I did, I had a basic understanding of the gospel at that age, but more so that God would be with me and uh, was with me. And um, but sounds, it was rough. That sounds kind of MTD-ish. What's MTD? Moralistic therapeutic deism. It probably was. Yeah. It probably was. I'm sure I was eating up with it, too. I mean, I don't think I was some prescient Christian, you know, but I do remember thinking that, like, it's not on the table for me to stab this guy, even though he's caused me physical and emotional pain. I'm thankful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Jared, anything else on what's distorted and evil here? No, I think, I think we're ready to move to the gospel. Yeah. So how does the gospel apply here? <clears throat> Um, I think in this movie, technology saves the day. Um, you know, glorification happens when May's relationships are restored, um, even her relationship with technology. And so the question comes, what is this relationship with technology? And I think it's a familial one. Hmm. Um, this movie, instead of viewing technology as a way to enhance our real relationships, and it does emphasize the dangers, as you've, you've pointed out, um, I think technology is put on the same level, at least concerning how the movie ends. Like, almost like there that you know, it's not an anti-technology or just a warning of technology, but a um, I don't know, like 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 we just need to have a good relationship with technology. Oh I guess. yeah, to order it properly is the solution, right? Yeah, but it but they personify, like they go out of their way to to make this technology a person with like, big eyes and a kind voice and your best interest at heart at all times. Yeah, and the memories and and the I mean the emphasis on our memories make us who we are. Um, like it, this robot is not like the all the other robots that she's dealt with. You know, yeah. it's this technology is, you know, and oh, it can fix all her problems and even correct her when she's morally wrong. And, um, but, uh, you know, technology saves a day in this movie, even mending the family and friend relationships that may needs, but it also argues that may needs technology. Um, but ultimately mankind needs one another. You know, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, um, you know, Adam named all the animals and, uh, he recognized that it wasn't good. You know, it, there was nothing for him and, uh, God said it wasn't good for man to be alone. And so he didn't give him technology, he gave him a woman. And, um, you know, I, I think that there's an emphasis there on men and women being made in God's image and needing, one another and then the emphasis on community and um, multiplying. And um, I mean, I've even heard arguments concerning the image being um, as far as man and woman being made in God's image, that man, woman and a child being a reflection of the triune identity of God. Um, And uh, and you see the 
you know, right after the garden that there are societies coming, you know, flourishing. Uh, there, so mankind is spreading. You see these clusters of people and, and tribes. And um, but the reality. So I guess I'm saying all that to say that we don't need technology. Um, I know that we're addicted to technology and I believe technology is a good thing. I'm not you know, or it can be a good thing. Um, but it's not essential. Need, right. I mean, you need your wife. You need your kids. Yeah. My church. Your church. You yeah. need your community. You don't need technology. Um, and so I want to push back again. I think that's the idol in this movie. I think, um, you know, it, it's just odd. Like technology saves saves her from technology. It even saves yeah. her from herself, you know. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, and that yeah, I guess that's where I want to go with this is that you said earlier you identify with May. I've been very critical of her, but I identify with her too. You know, this movie does remind me by putting her at the center, and I do think as a protagonist that we're supposed to kind of root for and mm-hmm. you know hope uh, for the best for. It reminds me that I am not a good person, and that given the right circumstances, I would be just as awful as the people who've been you know awful to me. I'm not fundamentally a victim. I'm fundamentally a victimizer. And I don't really need different circumstances. What I need is a different heart. Mm-hmm. And I, I need I need a savior who's not only able to deal with like the legal consequences of my wickedness, but he's able to work internally to make me into a different person. And I came away from May going, you, she looks a lot like what I see in the mirror when I see in my own heart. And I'm thankful I'm not dependent on the kind of robot who can like be shut down with a hard reboot, but that my savior is actually someone who's not only able to deal with the death I deserve, but able to undo the power of sin within me. Mm-hmm. So, so what, what you're saying, I mean, we we ultimately need reconciliation with God, and Christ has provided that eternally, and so that really frees us to endure suffering because. Well, the ultimate battle has been won, right? Yeah. Um, I mean that that it really frees us to. I mean, it's good. To, it's good to quote unquote win um, in life, whatever that looks like. I mean, I, I like to tell my church that you know we all we'd all volunteer to spend a million dollars for the glory of God, but but when the Lord would have us to suffer with cancer, or Parkinson's, and not many people are signing up for that, but both can be done for God's glory. Yeah, Amen. And um, you know, uh, I don't know. I need to be reminded of that constantly, man. I need to hear the gospel every day, if not every minute. Yeah. Because, good grief, I get so sidetracked by things that, that I should be free from. Sure. And, uh, I'm thankful, man. I mean, I don't know what I'd do without Jesus. I think I'd be dead, honestly. I think I would be, you know, uh, I mean, he, you know, I'll, I'll talk with atheists every now and then, and they'll make statements like, you know, if you need Jesus to to be a good person and all this stuff. And I'm like, dude, you're, you're barring from Christianity. That's the only reason you got any morals. But, uh, but I, I do need Jesus. Um, I mean, that's why I came to him. I need him desperately. Yeah. I'm sorry, but mankind ain't enough for me to keep on going, man. I, I need, I need Christ. I need, I mean, if I had to base everything on myself or, um, other people like, for ultimate uh, fulfillment. I mean, we, I constantly let myself down and then other people let me down. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, I, I just need the Lord and I'm so thankful that he is, he is forever 
faithful. I'm I'm rambling a bit, man. That's what preachers do. But anyway. well, you said earlier that we needed other humans. That you know, technology couldn't satisfy that. Yeah, and that's true. But it's a limited truth too. Like we ultimately, even as humans, need need something beyond just other fallen humans. We need right. a savior who's fully God and fully man to mm-hmm. to make us into uh, His Father's original design for us, rather than this thing that that our sin and our participation in it has made of us. So I'm with you. I leave this going. I'm thankful for for Christ. So. Amen. Amen. Anything else you need? Uh, anything else you got on this this movie here that we hadn't covered? No, I, uh, listener, if you haven't seen this yet, I think it's worth watching. I mean, it's worth engaging. Um, and uh, it's not going to be the best kids movie, but it won't be the worst. Uh, I mean, I, I think I'll watch it again. Um, but. I'm with you. I think parents are going to have to decide if they want to see these bleeped out cuss words. But this is the kind of movie that you could, if you decide that that's acceptable for your family, and I'm not saying you should or should not, uh, it's going to give you a chance to talk about certain issues that are about as relevant as possible in our cultural moment. Yeah. I mean, actually, my kids have seen it, but it was partly because I saw a new kids movie on Netflix and I saw the previous, like, oh, let's watch it. And I didn't think it, I didn't think about conscience warnings, you know. Right. Um, and that's my fault. But yeah, I'm glad you admit that because, you know, we we come on here and we talk about this stuff. I don't want people to think we don't drop the ball and are unthoughtful about the way we consume media either. So thanks for sharing that. Um, speaking of consuming media, I've got a nomination for what we cover next. OK, it is the John Cho movie Searching. Have you okay. have you seen anything about that? I've seen the previews, but I cannot remember. I, I know I've seen the previews, but I can't remember what it's about. Yeah, well, it's also sort of a technology-driven movie. He's a he's a dad whose daughter disappears, and he uses internet search and uh, Google Maps and all the resources that are available online to try to track her down. And I've heard nothing but great reviews from it. It's rated PG thirteen. I didn't see any indication there was nudity in it, and so I'm I'm going to dig into that. But assuming that this this is not a movie that's got graphic sexual content in it. I think it'd be a good one to to cover for our next episode. So okay, but yeah, that's great. And I I'll tell you this though, when I I do remember it now, and that actor, I just when I saw him, I thought this dude in this like Kumar Harold and Kumar. <laughs> oh yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. I'd forgotten about that. I've actually never seen that movie. You must have watched that with the kids in your mod, dude. I haven't seen it, but I've just you know I, I know enough about it that it's rough. Like yeah. you know. I mean, uh, so I just did not picture him as a serious actor. But yeah, he's done some good stuff lately. He um, talk about stuff that not all of our listeners want to watch. He was in the last season of the Exorcist TV show. They did a good job there. Really? Uh, yeah, he's he's done some TV works. He he, I've read some pieces saying he's the next it guy in Hollywood. But I'm really excited to watch really? this movie and see what's going on with it. All right. Well, Jared, outside the world of our podcast, where can our listeners find you? Hey, you can find me on Twitter, Jared H. Moore. You can find me on Facebook at All Truth is God's Truth. And you can find us on Pathios at pathios.com forward slash blogs forward slash pop culture quorum deo. Um, we write opinion, um, <laughs> companion pieces. Uh, to go along with our episodes uh, when we get a hankering for it every now and then. <laughs> yeah, every now and then. 
Um, we do have a list, though. We do have a list, 31 Days of Horror, coming out in the next week or two. It'll come out before, it'll hit before October. Yeah, and so we're trying to help people who, like us, enjoy horror movies, but want to um, want to watch those in a way that doesn't offend our conscience. And so this list should serve you as you gear up for the, the month of year most associated with being scared. Um, you can find the podcast at PCCDPod on most social media platforms. Also want to commend to you the uh, Pop Culture Quorum Deo Perpetual After Party, the Facebook group. I think there's a lot of reasons to not be on Facebook anymore. But if you are... Um, if you're still on that platform, or if you think, you know what, I'll just create an account, and the only thing I'll do is talk to the people on the uh, the Facebook group. I think it's a pretty good use of your time if you're going to engage with people through social media. It's a good place to get started. So join in there. We'd love to talk to you on there. Um, if you want to connect with me outside of the podcast, I'm at Right Jeff. We would so appreciate reviews left on wherever you're consuming this podcast. Uh, iTunes in particular, a five-star review goes a long way to helping new people find the show. So thanks in advance to those of you who will make that choice. And thanks to those of you who've already done so. We really appreciate that. Uh, Guys, we are at the end of this episode, and we are looking forward to being back with you next time. So until then, for Jared Moore, I'm Jeff Wright saying thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the next episode of the Pop Culture Coromdale Podcast. Thank you.